All right, if you have a Bible, let's get after it. We'll be in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Welcome to uh, service. Glad that you are here with us. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. We'll be in Daniel chapter 7 uh, this morning, starting a new sermon series called Visions of Victory, uh, where we'll be walking through the second part of Daniel. So glad that you have joined us uh, this morning. Uh, I think it'll be a good time uh, together. So Daniel 7, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath a seat uh, around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip it open with us. Daniel chapter 7. And a very interesting passage this morning, Daniel 7. Stories, plot, character development, stories are one of the more powerful tools that human beings possess. Um, We use stories to shape our world. We use stories to uh, make sense of the world around us. We use stories to make sense of ourselves and who we are and what we experience. We use stories to make sense of our past and make sense of our future. And we use stories often to inspire us, to, to push us forward. And so um, for a few years, I was a uh, itinerant speaker for youth. And so I went around and spoke at, at youth camps and retreats and things like that. And, and what I learned speaking um, is that kids love stories, okay? Um, they just love stories, right? If you have kids, you've probably experienced this, right? Um, you read them a bedtime story. There's characters, there's plot, okay? There's tension, if there's um, a princess that needs to be saved, if there's a, a king to rescue her, right? Kids are just going to eat that up. Now, here's what I've learned also as I have continued to speak, is that adults love stories just as much. I mean, really, if you have a room full of people and you can tell a good story, you have a room full of people who will listen to you and who you'll be able to impact. And, and, and so I even say this to people who would ask me for advice every now and then on how to speak. I would say, it doesn't even have to be a good story. I mean, you, don't, you don't have to make people cry. You don't have to make people laugh. Okay, As long as it's a, a, a story that makes sense, as long as they can follow it along, people love stories. They, they love to hear stories. They love to put themselves inside of stories. They love to compare stories. We live in a story. I think all of us operate with a narrative. Uh, this is how we see the world around us, right? Um, for some of our narratives, we are the victim. And so we go through life, right? And the story around us is everybody hates us, everybody's against us, right? And, and we're just kind of this victim and we need to be saved, we need to be rescued. Others of us are the heroes in our story, right? This might be more common, right? You're the Michael Jordan of your world. Um, and, and the story that you tell is just how awesome you are. You walk into a grocery store by yourself and everyone is like, oh my gosh, is that him? That's him, right? And then you interpret all of your stories through that. When someone doesn't like you, when they don't get along with you, you're wondering, how are they not seeing what everyone else is seeing, right? How can, they not, how can they not fit into the story correctly? Um, we use stories in this really powerful way. And, and again, I think they, they shape us, narratives shape us and inform us and inspire us on a deep level, much deeper than sometimes I think we give credit to. Think about all the money that's spent to tell stories to you and all this money you spend to hear stories, to listen to stories. Think about how you feel leaving a movie theater. Okay, IMAX right? Surround sound, the palladium, okay, over there. How you feel leaving this inspiring movie, right? The world seems a little bit different to you. You have a little hop in your step. You're a little inspired. You're a little um, more courageous, more bold. Uh, we, we use stories to, to kind of frame our world, to make sense of it, to, to push us forward. And when I was in high school, I went through a period of my life where I got really sick and um, developed real severe depression and, and kind of crippling anxiety. And, and it was one of the darker times in my life. And, and I missed a whole lot of school during that time and, and just was kind of real crippled by what I was experiencing. And so what I would do while I missed school is watch movies. Um, and in particular, this one movie kept coming on over and over and over again on the TV. And so it kind of became like my story um, for that period of my life. And it was the movie Rocky, okay? Italian Stallion. I don't know if you're familiar with it. If not, what's wrong with you? <laughs> 
Okay, so classic story, right? A left-handed Italian boxer, okay, who gets the fight of his life, uh, gets a shot at the title. Um, and, and so Rocky just kind of became this story, this narrative that kind of fed my soul. Um, and, and for a little boy who was being beat down just by life and, and by everything around him, it was kind of the story that pushed me forward, that inspired me, right? It, it taught me that underdogs sometimes come out on top. And it taught me that no matter how many times you get hit, you can still get up, right? It's, it was this powerful, inspiring story. I'm sure you have probably one or two movies or one or two books that are your favorites, Right, that, that really just speak to your soul, that really inspire you to move you forward. Now, what we're going to read this morning in Daniel 7 is one of those stories for the Jewish people and for Christians. Um, it's one of these stories that is real foundational to everything they think and believe about the world. Um, for, for Jews, it played this large role in their faith, in their history, um, in the way that they saw the world, in the way that they interpreted their scriptures. For Christians, it continued to play a really important role. For the people of God, at all places and all times, this story that we're going to read has been this, this important foundational piece of how they view themselves and how they view the world. Um, so when you get into the New Testament, you see this, this, this influence of Daniel 7 pretty strongly. Um, in the Gospels, you see Daniel 7 alluded to and referenced over and over and over again. In fact, I'll argue next week, not today, but next week, that Jesus himself, this was his story. Um, I think Jesus saw the world around him through the lenses of Daniel 7. I think that's how he interpreted the people around him. I think that's how he interpreted his mission, his role. And I think that comes out, we'll, we'll walk through the Gospels next week, I think you see that so clearly. Jesus sees the world around him and understands his part in that world through this story. This is what's happening. Um, uh, throughout the New Testament, you see more and more references. The book of Revelation, some have suggested, is just one big sermon, one big exegesis, one big interpretation of Daniel 7. It's just foundational, monumental story for Christians for the people of God. Now, the story falls under what we'll call apocalyptic, okay? It's a genre of literature. So when we started the book of Daniel, uh, we noticed that the first half of Daniel is narrative, a story, and the second half of Daniel is apocalyptic, these, these apocalyptic visions, okay? When you think of apocalyptic, you probably think of end of the world, right? Big cosmic battles, big struggles, right? Um, huge power shifts, things blowing up. Um, uh, apocalyptic. Now, the only thing I would add to that, okay, as we get ready to read these, these kind of visions, is this. Think of apocalyptic less of end of the world and more end of the world as we know it, okay? It's about something dramatic in the world happening and the way things once run no longer being run that way. So, so you can see this with movies, right? If you've seen the movie I Am Legend with Will Smith, right? It's a post-apocalyptic movie. A lot of our movies that are apocalyptic are post-apocalyptic. What's the world like after something big and dramatic happens? Apocalypse, um, apocalypses aren't about the world of space-time matter ending. It's about something dramatic changing or regime change. And the scriptures, apocalyptic literature, is often celebrating the victory of God over his enemies. So we're going so to be reading um, for the next few weeks, 7 to 12, Daniel 7 to 12, apocalyptic visions. So you've got to kind of buckle up, okay? Because it gets weird. Um, he takes a few left turns on awkward and weird and random avenue. And, and, and it's something that I think we don't explore all that often, right? Every now and then we step out into some sci-fi movies, but, but we'll see some stuff here in Daniel that, that ices the cake, okay, as far as whatever kind of weird sci-fi you're into, or I've seen um, Sharknado, okay, I don't know what it is, but, but there's some stuff in Daniel, right, that's going to be able to rival that. I get so many cool points, because I referenced Sharknado. <laughs> bucket list. All right. Um, so now, uh, Apocalypse, when we read it, we've got to be careful. We mentioned that at the beginning of Daniel, there's two temptations when we read through Daniel. The first is to VeggieTales stories. So for these narrative sections, to make them like cute, moralizing stories instead of like these rich, powerful, prophetic texts. 
Well, the temptation in these apocalyptic visions is to Bible code it, okay? What I mean by Bible code is to go into these stories and analyze and dissect every single word and try to match it up to something or someone or some place in our current global political kind of arena. Um, So when we read Daniel, right, this refers to Syria and this refers to America and this refers to this and this refers to that, right? Now, apocalyptic literature is not meant to be read that way. As a genre, it's metaphor rich. It is symbolism rich. So lots of numbers, lots of symbols, lots of images. It's not supposed to be a science book, right? When you see in apocalyptic literature stars falling from the sky, you're not supposed to wonder at what point in the future will stars actually fall from the sky, right? This is a poetic way of describing something big and dramatic happening in the world, not necessarily an actual astronomical event in creation. The same way when we read the poetry of the Psalms and we read God is my rock, we don't go, I wonder where I can check out a geology book where I can figure out what kind of rock God is, right? No, we know. It's poetry. God's not actually a rock in poetry. There's lots of metaphors. There's lots of signs. So we want to be careful and cautious when we read these stories, when we read these visions, and not try to dissect them and analyze them too much. At times, we'll remind ourselves that every generation, since they were written, has thought that they applied to their current global political scheme, right? And they've all been wrong. Um, there's this temptation to, to miss the forest by trying to look at the trees. Um, and so what we want to do, particularly this morning, we'll talk about Daniel 7 and maybe how we can interpret it, what it can apply to. This morning, I just want to, I want to do this with you. I want to just read the story. And I want to just experience the story. I don't want to, I don't want to confuse ourselves with applying every little thing and dissecting every little word because I don't think stories work like that. I don't think their power is held like that. Stories are like a, a joke, Right? If you have to explain it, it's not very funny, right? And, and stories are like, they're like poetry, right? There's something powerful in the metaphor itself, right? When you tell your wife your hair is like the golden sand on the beach, right? That's different than your hair is blonde, I like it, right? There's something, there's something different there. Now, it might, it might translate roughly the same, right? But you lose meaning when you try to just try to just hollow it out. You try to just make it dry. You try to make it shallow. So, so we just want to read the story. And I think the story is going to do to us what it was supposed to do to the Jewish and Christian people of God, um, which is help them make sense of their world. What's happening in the world around us? What story are we living in? What's the true story, the biblical story that we find ourselves in? And I think in Daniel 7, we'll see two truths about the story that we're living in. Okay, so Daniel 7, and um, we'll read it together. And look for two truths about the story that we're living in um, as God's people. Daniel 7, we'll pick up in verse 1. Now as we read, let me ask you to try to turn on your imaginations, okay? So try to picture this in your mind. Um, It'll be a little hard. Um, There's some mixed metaphors and things like that happening, but, but we'll try to do it, okay? So, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, verse 2, here we go. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So you're dreaming, and you start to have this dream, and you're on the shore of this great sea. But this is no peaceful sea. This is not calm like glass. It's, it's rocky, and, and the winds start to gather up. And not just one wind, but winds from all over the place. And, 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 and soon, before you know it, this huge storm has built. And you're standing there watching the storm, watching the rain, watching the sea be tossed around. And then verse 3, four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. So as you're watching the sea, you're, you're starting to make out a shape coming out of the water through the mist and through the rain, through the lightning and through the thunder. And you see it as beasts, four beasts, one after the other, come up out of the sea. 
And four great beasts came out, different from one another. Verse four, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So you start to make out this first beast, okay? And it looks like a lion. But, but it doesn't look like a lion you've ever seen before because as you, you're looking at the lion, you start to see wings on the lion and, and, and they look a lot like eagle's wings, okay? And so, so you see this big kind of snarling beast come out of the water. Again, it's still lightning, it's still raining, it's still thundering all over you. Um, and then this lion with wings shows up, comes up out of the middle of the water. And as you looked at it, its wings were plucked off. So there's this kind of weird thing happens where its, its reins get ripped off of its back and, and what's left is kind of this bloody mess, right? And you see this line kind of writhing in pain and, and it's kind of this scary, frightening, weird image that's happening right in front of you and, and the wings get plucked off and then it's lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. The lion seems to be making, being made into a man. The mind of a man was given to it. So there's this like brain surgery, right? Open mind, open brain, open head surgery where the mind of a man is given to it. And so this is your first beast that you see come up out of the water. It's a little bit of an interesting story so far. Interesting vision, maybe less of a dream and more of a nightmare. Okay. Um, now, particularly what's scary about this first beast to me is the mind part, right? One of the things that separates us from the animals, some of these animals, I don't know if you've seen or experienced, are stronger and faster and bigger and tougher than us, but we're a little bit smarter, right? The comedian said the worst thing that could happen is if a bear could figure out how to open a door, right? I mean, this is what we have against them, right? We can build stuff. We have opposable thumbs, things of that nature. But if you give a lion, right, the mind of a man... With that strength and with that intelligence, it's bad news. So as you're trying to make sense of this first beast that comes up out of the water, a second beast comes up. Behold, verse 5, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. Now, we're not sure how we should imagine this. Maybe this should be the bear on its hind legs like it's about to attack. Maybe on its side like it's about to pounce down on someone. Or maybe just distended in the air. Like if you've seen a, a movie about exorcisms or demon possessions. And there are these, these weird times, right, when the person gets lifted up in the air by something invisible. This huge bear distended by its side in the air. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It's been eating. And it was told, you hear this loud voice say, Arise and devour much flesh. And you're looking around going, that's not good. I'm flesh. Those ribs don't look like they have a whole lot of meat left on them. Now, as you're thinking about the second beast, okay, behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. So this leopard comes up out of the water. It's got four wings, but it also the beast had four heads. It's got four wings and four heads and dominion was given to. It. And as you see this fourth or this third beast, you, you just implicitly realize it has authority. It has command. It is in charge. Dominion has been given to it. And the sense of dread, the sense of coldness to the inner part of your soul fills you up. Because you realize this four-winged, four-headed leopard rising up out of the rainy, stormy waters controls everything. It owns you. It has dominion. And then you get the fourth beast. The fourth beast is not like the other three beasts. It's bigger and badder. If you thought the first three were kind of weird, kind of scary, just wait until the fourth beast comes out of the water. In the night visions, behold, I saw a fourth beast, verse 7, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. This beast is not compared to an animal. It's almost the sense of, of there's, it's so scary and dangerous. There's no quite animal you can match it up with. But you get these strong descriptions about it. Terrible, exceedingly strong. Dreadful. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stomped what was left with its feet. So it would eat and eat and eat 
And then with what remained left, it would crush it into gravel. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So you see on this beast ten horns. And as he considered the horns, behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now at this point you might be wondering... How a story like this, how a story seemingly so weird and so random becomes such a central part of what you and I believe as Christians, of how the people of God have viewed the world around them. Now, here's the first big truth I think we can learn from this story. There are two scenes. This is the first scene that we'll read, and then they'll shift to a second scene. The first scene with these beasts rising up out of the sea, I think is an indication of this. The world as we know it is the product of something going horribly wrong. Something has gone horribly wrong in God's good creation. This is your first truth on your worship guide. Something has gone horribly wrong in God's good creation. There are a few clues to this as we read. The first is the storm, the sea. In, in the ancient world, sea um, was a, a symbol of, of chaos and disorder and destruction and evil. It was this kind of uncontrollable force that would come against God's people and destroy them. You and I often think of the sea as this nice place where we can go on cruises, unless you went with Carnival, okay? Um, but you can go on cruises, and you can kind of enjoy yourself on the sea. Um, but for ancient people, the sea was something that, that often just killed people randomly, right? I mean, it often just come and took your life. Uh, I remember this summer, just a few weeks ago, actually, I was in Florida with my family, and, and we were out on a boat, uh, and, and we went out on the boat in the morning. It was a little bit stormy out. Uh, and as we went out, I mean, we kind of had to convince my mom to get in it. Um, as we went out, there was no one else out in the ocean, which is your first sign that you probably shouldn't be out here. Okay, So, so we went out, and we kind of tubed around and, and had a good time. And, and as we were coming back in, we were still kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, kind of just all hell broke loose Okay, over us. I mean, probably the biggest, baddest storm I've ever been in in my life. Um, pounding rain that was freezing cold and I don't know if it was just how cold it was or if there was hail but it hurt I mean it actually hurt your face coming down where where we were kind of huddled up under life jackets because it, it, it hurt so bad and and the sky is completely black and the rain is just coming down six foot seven foot swells just throwing our boat around thunder and lightning everywhere um so the scene is this I'm at the front of the boat kind of sitting up at the top and and to be honest, I'm not just saying this because I want to, you know, seem brave and courageous in front of you, okay? Um, but I thought, I mean, I wasn't that scared. I thought it was kind of cool. I mean, I, I realized, right, it's not the best situation to be in, but this is an awesome story. Like, how often do you get stuck out in the middle of, of a storm in the ocean, right, on this little boat? Um, so there's me at the front of the boat. Then there's my dad at the, the wheel, right, trying to look like he knows what's going on and is in control of the situation, but obviously um, just at a loss for any kind of plan of action. And then you have the rest of my family, my mother and my two sisters and my brother, at the back of the boat, and I, I turn around and I look at them, and they're all just sobbing uncontrollably because they're scared. Because in this moment, there's this feeling of hopelessness that if, if the sea, if, this, if these waters wanted to kill us right now, there would be no one around to stop them. I mean, no one's going to say boo, right? If it wants to flip us up and turn us over in the water, it's just going to happen. If the lightning's going to strike us, it's just going to happen. So I kind of went to the back of the boat, and we prayed, and I was trying to calm everyone down. And, and in that moment, I, I kind of made a realization, right, with these ancient people who were so scared of the sea. I mean, imagine if you were in a wooden boat, right, without knowing much about the ocean, without knowing much about how the world works, and you're out in the middle of the sea, and this big storm comes... I mean, just imagine the kind of dread and terror that would fill, your, fill you up. Or imagine if you live near a place where there's hurricanes and tsunamis and things of that nature, right? You understand the sea will come get you. 
We can control a lot of things as human beings, but you can't control the water. You can't control the oceans. This was a common motif in ancient Near Eastern literature. The sea is a symbol of chaos. So, so when you have the sea rising up, you immediately have something that's bad. Right? You immediately have this sense of fear and dread. This is chaotic and destructive and evil, and something's gone wrong. Something is about to go wrong with what I'm going to experience. And then you have these beasts come up. The beasts are unnatural. Notice that the beasts are not anything you'd find in God's world. <coughs> There's no, on the third day, God created the lion with the wings of an eagle. Right? I mean, these are, are mutants. They're bizarre. They're distorted. They're perverted. This is God's creation gone wrong. Turned into something that it was never supposed to be. And these, these beasts are destructive. They're evil. They destroy and they wage war against what is good and true in creation. As one scholar said, the beast emerging from the turbulent sea bespeak the mystery of evil in God's world and its history. So the Israelites tell the story because when they look out at the world and they see all the evil in the world, and when they experience the evil on their front steps when other nations come in and destroy them, slaughter them, and, and they're exiled into Babylon, which is where they are right now, they're in exile. They understand that as, as beasts coming out of the sea. They understand we're living in a world where things have gone wrong, where God's good creation has been distorted, has been flipped upside down, and there are destructive, chaotic, evil forces at work in our world. This story shaped how they saw the world around them. Now, this is important, I think, because we often, at least in our context, downplay the extent of the fall. And the extent to which the world, as we experience it, is not the world which God desires um, for his creation to experience. And so we might say this this morning. Scripture, throughout Scripture, Scripture portrays our world in the midst of a great conflict. Scripture portrays our world in the midst of a great conflict. You have creation, and creation is good and ordered and peaceful and true. But then there's this fall. And from then on out, there's these, these horrific things that enter into creation. Sickness and death and abuse and poverty and these evil spiritual powers and things that were not there in the beginning. And, and God's mission from the beginning, once, this things, things, once the story goes bad, once, once, once things fall, his mission from the beginning is to establish his will on earth as is in the heaven. To bring back his control, to bring back his domain, to bring back his kingdom to his creation. But there's a conflict involved. There's a warring involved. There's a battling involved with what's happened to his creation. You see this theme throughout the entire scriptures in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Sometimes we don't see it as much. I think we're trained often to read the Bible in, in kind of like a blueprint worldview, where everything that's ever happened is exactly going according to plan and everything's A-OK. When you read the scriptures, though, there's this sense that things have gone horribly wrong and that God is working against what we're experiencing in creation and trying to bring us up out of it. That there's this mission in place, there's this project in place. In the Old Testament, you see this theme, this kind of conflict theme throughout. Um, the, the, primary, the primary enemy of God in the Old Testament are the hostile waters. Um, again, you and I probably miss this when we read. It's in the Psalms, it's in Job, it's, it's not the Old Testament. But Yahweh, um, the God of Israel, rebukes the waters. He keeps them in their place. Again, when we think of that, we think of just creation, right? God sat an ocean there, a lake there, um, shores there. Um, but for an ancient person, this is a God holding back evil, holding back destruction, trying to bring his order, his goodness to creation. And the Israelites, over and above their neighbors, who said, our God does this to the waters. The Israelites said, no, our God does it. And our God is one. Everyone else had a whole bunch of gods that were in charge of controlling the waters. 
And Israel said, no, our God controls the waters, the hostile waters, keeps them at bay. In the Old Testament, you'll find references as well to these cosmic monsters. I don't know if you've ever experienced this as you're reading through the Old Testament. There's a monster called the Leviathan, which is this fiery, um, watery serpent, okay? It has smoke coming out of its nose, fire coming out of its mouth. Um, and, and you'll find this again in the Psalms, again in Job. Um, you have Rahab. You have all these different kind of cosmic monsters. Again, these are symbols for evil and destruction and chaotic forces in God's world. These creatures that work against God's purposes. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see God saying, I control them. I push them back. I put them in their place. Um, when Job questions God on how he runs the world, one of the things God says is, do you want to go deal with the Leviathan? I mean, do you want to go try to put him back in his place? Do you want to, do you want to go try to fish, right? You want to put a hook in Rahab's mouth? Or, or are you going to let me deal with what's going wrong with creation? Are you going to let my wisdom order history and order how things work? Can you trust me? This is why the book of Job is actually about wisdom and not about the problem of evil. It's about how God orders the world. This is why the climax of Job in, verse, in chapter 28, it's all about where is wisdom found? Wisdom's found in the Lord. He contains it and no one else does. So we trust his ability to set creation right back on the track it's supposed to be. When you get into the New Testament, this warfare theme, this conflict theme, um, blows up in your face, okay? And you have this all-out picture of a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world or the kingdoms of Satan. Um, multiple times in John, Jesus himself refers to Satan, this kind of spiritual enemy, um, as the archon of the world, the dominant authority, the ruler of the world. In Luke 4, Satan tells Jesus that he has all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't tell him he's wrong. Jesus simply says, I'm not going to get it from you I'm doing what you're wanting me to do. In 1 John 5.19, um, Satan has control over the entire world, Scripture says. In 2 Corinthians 4, Satan is the God of this world. In Ephesians 2.2, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In 1 John, again, Jesus' purpose was to come to destroy the works of the devil. Again, this is not a world that's all A-OK, where Jesus just came to die in this nice, peaceful world for sinners to be forgiven. This is a picture of God coming into battle and to rescue and to redeem a creation that's gone horribly wrong, that has evil forces at work within it. But he shows up to rescue and to redeem. The New Testament um, Gospels particularly repeatedly identify things as, like illness um, and, and war and abuse and things of that nature as, as demonic and things that should not be in creation. The main message from beginning to end, again, of the Bible, the narrative, the, the meta-narrative is that God is trying. He's, he's working a project and a plan to get his will established on earth as it is in heaven to restore order and goodness and beauty to creation the way it was in the beginning. Now... Um, real quick, other ancient Near Eastern stories of creation, okay? So um, they would often say that creation arose out of a great battle between gods um, or supernatural powers, theomachy, okay, this great cosmic battle. Um, and, and the Israelites' creation story is actually really unique in the sense that there's no battle scene at the beginning of it. There's no, I gave a lecture on this recently, the, the parallels between the ancient Near East and then the Old Testament creation stories. And it's very interesting because... Um, particularly in one real famous ancient Eastern creation story, uh, Enuma Elish, okay, it's the Babylonian creation story. Um, what happens is the world is a product of this war between Tiamat, who's this evil kind of sea god, um, a female sea god, saltwater sea god, right? Sea, chaos, evil destruction. And then her great-grandson, Marduk, uh, who's a god um, who is battling against her to protect the rest of the gods because she's upset. She wants to kill all her grandsons because they're noisy and they're annoying, much like kids are, okay? Um, so <laughs> she wants to, to kill Marduk and his brothers and sisters, so he says, I'll protect you if, if I win, I'm in control. 
I'm the sovereign God over all the gods that are out there. And so that's, this is their story of how Marduk became the sovereign God, why we worship him over these other gods. And so Marduk defeats Tiamat and actually creates the world out of her carcass, out of her dead body. He splits in half, and that's the world, which is a beautiful picture of the world, don't you think, right? Everything around us, this is a rotting carcass of a deity of this, this sea god, um, Tiamat. Um, now, the Babylonians use stories like this to explain why there's chaos and evil and war all around us at all times. Don't miss it. The world was literally founded on violence. That's how it's always been since before we were even here. <coughs> we were created as little pawns and as slaves of these violent, evil gods. So what do you expect? This is how the world is. And there's only one group of people in the ancient world who come up with a different explanation for the world. It's this little band of Jews. And they come and they say, there was no war. There's no violence. Out of a peaceful existence from all of eternity, a peaceful God created a good and ordered world. So when the Israelites looked out at the world and saw chaos and destruction and evil and war and death, they said, this is a mistake. This is not the way the world should be. This is not the way it was. And this is not the way it will be when God finishes his plan. Do you see the big difference there? I mean, this is a different worldview. This is a different way of seeing the world. And, and there's like told this story. Right now we're experiencing the beast rise out of the sea, these chaotic and destructive forces of evil in our world. But the story's not going to end there, even though... There seems to be this, this sway and power that evil has in our world right now. There's more to the story. Now, I think this is important because our mindsets, you and I, our mindsets, God's people, um, should be that of warfare and not a vacation. Okay? We should be understanding that we're in the middle of beast and a sea and not in the middle of Disney World at Epcot. Right? Um, when we look out of the world, our narrative of the world okay, is that it's fallen. Things have not gone according to plan. Um, in vacation, you think and act one way. In warfare, you think and act in another way. In vacation, you're uh, concerned about being as comfortable as possible, looking out for number one, pampering yourself, mani-pedi, okay, just having a good time, keeping your problems away from your mind, not thinking about them, pushing them off, looking the other way, ignoring them. But in warfare, you can't do that. I mean, in warfare, you have to, to constantly be on the lookout. What's going wrong? You have to be acknowledging it. You have to be planning it. You have to be on your defense. I think too often, you and I as, as Christians, particularly in our context, live in a vacation Christian mindset to where the world is, for the most part, pretty good. And so it's okay for us to worry about ourselves and look out for number one and worry about how comfortable we are and, and try not to think about those problems. Yeah, there, there's problems and there's mess out, out, out in the rest of the world, but let's try not to think about it. Let's enjoy our vacation. Things are good for us. The scriptures are going to consistently say, no, you need to realize the world as it is right now is torn. There's a warfare happening. Not a literal warfare, a spiritual warfare, but there's real evil in the world that's really causing destructive, chaotic things to happen. And this should change the way we think. This should change the way we experience the world around us. Do you think if you ask Syrian Christians this morning, whether it made sense to them that the world is under attack by these beasts who have come out of the sea, that they would have a problem accepting that. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. The world as we're experiencing is, is awfully wrong. Um, I think some of the best Christian ethicists that we have rightly analyzed our reaction to 9-11 as being one of surprise. 
we were largely surprised that, that we still live in a world where it was possible for thousands of people to die out of a senseless act of terror. Unfortunately, most of the world understands this on a daily basis. This is the world we live in. So as Christians, um, we, we spend our money knowing that it's not our job to ignore the fact that most of the world is, is starving. It's our job to acknowledge that. It's our job to, to understand that that's happening, to, to find our place in that, how we can serve faithfully for that. It's not our job to, to ignore the problems of our city. It's not our job to ignore the problems of our family or ignore the problems of our heart. We get to acknowledge that the world has, has gone wrong. That we live in a world ravaged by beasts, ravaged by these chaotic forces of evil. But the story doesn't end there. So if you look in verse 9, Daniel 7 verse 9, you have a scene shift, a scene change, okay? It goes from this, this beast scene on earth to a scene in heaven. And this is where the dramatic, like, classical music kicks in, okay? Morgan Freeman starts reading at this point. Um, <laughs> Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. You'll notice it changes into poetry here. It goes from narrative to poetry. It's, it's trying to communicate this climactic. I mean, I mean, this is a beautiful scene here. As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So out of all of this chaos, these beasts in the world, all of a sudden, you look up, and God is there, the Ancient of Days. And he sets his throne up, opens up his court, and you're, you're kind of overwhelmed by the scene of his, his power and his sovereignty and his beauty, right? With these flames and all these people serving him. And the, the books are opened up, and court is in session. You're now getting to watch a heavenly law court. The plaintiff is the world, and God's going to judge the world. And not in a negative sense, again, we often think of judgment in this negative sense, but in the sense of, this is not allowed, and will not be allowed anymore. The beast with iron teeth is not what I intended for my creation. The lion ravaging the world, devouring much less, is not intended for my creation. Ancient days sets his throne up in the midst and says, let's hash some things out. And let's return my creation to what I intended it to be. I looked then because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. So remember this little horn has popped up. It's got eyes of a man. We're trying to look at it. It's kind of weird. But it's talking and talking and talking and talking. And we're trying to pay attention to the ancient days, but it keeps talking. So we look back at this horn. And as we looked, the beast was killed, was slain. And its body was destroyed. And it was given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. Their ability to influence the world, their control was taken away, even though their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And they came, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So a cloud rider here, um, this is uh, often used to describe God in the Old Testament. Um, God is a cloud rider, he rides on the clouds. But this cloud rider is a human, it's one like the son of a man. This is an interesting juxtaposition here. He shows up, he comes before the Ancient of Days, set on his throne, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This, this son of a man is given the kingdom of God's world. God judges the evil that's in this world and says, you rule on my behalf. 
bring my will to earth as it is in heaven. Here's the second truth for us from this story, the second truth of the story that we find ourselves in. It's this, God is determined to rescue his creation and to rid it of evil. God is determined to rescue his creation and rid it of evil. He will accomplish his goal of bringing heaven to earth of his will being accomplished. And this creates a few things in us. The first thing is it should create in the people of God this kind of undying hope, okay, where they can look at the most snarling, nasty, dangerous, scary beasts in the world and look them in the face and go, I'm not that scared. Your days are numbered. You will fall. The Ancient of Days is the one who rules. He's the one I report to. So think back to the stories earlier in Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, you have um, the story of Daniel's three friends and the fiery furnace, right? I think we should read the first part of Daniel as intersecting with the second part of Daniel. These visions are why Daniel's friends were able to live so boldly. Why are these three friends able to go, throw us in the fiery furnace? Because in their minds, they knew, you're a beast. And I know what happens to the beast. I know how the story goes. You're slain, and the Ancient of Days rules. The Son of Man shows up and takes dominion. And in fact, they met the Son of Man in the fiery furnace. And why is Daniel able to look at the king and say, throw me in the lion's den? It's fine. Because he knew how the story went. He was this, this person of undying hope. You and I, in our lives, are able to look at the beasts in our world and, and even able to look at the beasts in our own hearts, in our our own minds and our own souls and say, there's hope. I mean, this is the remarkable thing about the Christian religion, about Christian faith, is that in the darkest of times, there's hope. God is committed to bring beauty out of darkness, to bring life out of death. We call it resurrection. This last thing that that we'll land on here is, and I think it's important, is we should be because of these truths, because of the way the world's operating, because of the story that we find ourselves in, in creation, we should be people who live a lifestyle of revolt and not resignation. We revolt against the way things are right now. We don't resign ourselves to them. We realize this is not how creation's always been. This is not how it's going to be. And we're called right now to be signs of how it's going to be. When God gets rid of all the evil in creation, we don't step back and go, well, this is just how it is. People starve and people go to war and people get killed and kids are abused and and people are trafficked throughout the world. And what can we do about it except protect ourselves? We say instead, no, this should not be here. And we'll do whatever we can in our part to get rid of it. We revolt. We're spiritual activists. This is the life that Jesus lived. This is the life of kingdom people that he's called us to. To look at the world around us and say, these things are not good. Let's get them out of creation. To look at our own hearts and our own lives and to say, this is not the way I'm supposed to be. I revolt against this. By the power of Jesus, by his spirit inside of me, I'll say, I'll walk free from this. I'll be transformed. I'll walk in the victory provided for me. This story of the beast and the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, it, it formed the Jewish people and the Christian people and, and ours, should be forming ours, our imaginations, the way we see the world, the way we experience the world, the role that we think we play in the world, what we put our trust in, what we put our hope in. Now we'll get to interpreting them, right? What did the beast stand for? When is this going to happen? Has it already happened? Those kind of things. I mean, we'll, we'll get to those kind of things, but for this morning, I just want us to feel the story, I mean, just experience the story. Just adopt the story. Just look at the world through this narrative. Because we will once read about a guy who shows up and says, I'm the son of man. In fact, that's his favorite title for himself. 
He says, if you'd like to know who I am and what I'm here to do, I'm the son of man, one like a son of man. And we'll get to that. We'll get to the interpretation. We'll get to connecting the dots here. But for now, let's just feel the story. Let's interpret our world through this, this narrative. The Son of Man, we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we have this morning um, to worship and to read your scriptures. We pray, Father, that you would um, continue to speak to us through your scriptures. We pray that you would inspire us to um, follow after you more faithfully and more courageously. We pray that you would give us mindsets of, of warfare, not vacation, Father, that we would realize that there are things to be done um, and, and sacrifices to be made and, and obedient steps to be taken, Father. We pray that you'd give us the wisdom and the courage to do so. We pray that, that you would help us see your commitment to creation, your love to rescue and redeem, that, that we might be infused with the hope so characteristic of your people. We, we pray that you would give us lifestyles of revolt and not resignation. Um, that we would, in, in Jesus' name, stand against that which is destructive in God's good creation and work towards his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, as, as Christ's people, we pray that, that we want and work for and seek for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, this morning we ask that in our prayers, in our lives, that your kingdom would come. That's in your son's name. That all God's people said, Amen. Amen.